The following audio is from West Pines Community Church. For more information about West Pines, visit us online at westpines.org. You can join us live Sunday mornings at 9.45 a.m. or 11.30 a.m. in Pembroke Pines, Florida, or online at westpines.org. When I think of a computer desktop background, like wallpaper, I think of, there's one classic picture that I think of. One picture, if I think of all the different creative pictures you can have, you know, where all your icons are on your desktop, if I can think of one desktop wallpaper that I think of that's classic, it's this picture right here. Check this out. Anyone remember this picture? Some of you may have this. I mean, this is... I mean, when you're sitting there at your desk, it's, it's Monday, okay, it's tomorrow. You get to work, you, it's about 2.30, you need another cup of coffee. You've got this, like, sickly yellow buzzing fluorescent lights overhead. And sometimes you just need to close whatever application is going on and just stare at that little island and long to be there all alone, on your own little island. When I think of a desktop wallpaper, this, is that, this classic picture is the picture I think of, but there's actually one that's even more famous. Tell me if you remember this picture. Go ahead and pull up the next one. And anyone actually say, I had that at one point as my wallpaper on my desktop. This picture right here is actually called Bliss. That's the name of this picture. And there are people who believe that this picture may be the most well-known photograph in the world because of, because of its popularity as wallpaper for your computer. And this is created, because as people have recognized the popularity of this particular picture, it's created kind of a buzz about this picture. And so some people did some background research on where this picture, Bliss, came from. And it was actually, the picture was taken around 1999-2000 by a uh, National Geographic photographer. He was moving towards retirement, and he was in his home in uh, California, and he was driving along just kind of a country road on his way to visit his girlfriend. And he drove by this field, saw that, got out of his car, set up his, his tripod with his analog camera. You know, he had to put film in it and wind it. I don't know if you can remember ancient history like that when you used to have to do that kind of thing. And he gets out and he takes the picture of this. So this is what this means. This is not a digital photoshopped picture. This is what he saw. In fact, as he describes the scene that he took, he said, it was actually better than that, but by the time I pulled my car over, walked down to this scene, some clouds had rolled in and it wasn't quite as pretty anymore as it was when I first saw it. And he took this picture and uh, Microsoft bought it because they wanted to make it one of their stock wallpapers in Windows XP. And they bought it from him, and it has since become one of the most well-known photographs in the world. They estimate over a billion people have seen this picture. It has been in the White, everywhere from the White House to the Kremlin because it's, on, it's a famous desktop background. Now, why do pictures like this, why are they just classic wallpapers for us? Especially a picture called Bliss. Why might that be a picture that we put at our workstation underneath all of our applications that we occasionally want to all minimize and just stare off into a picture like this. 
Well, I wonder if it's because when it comes to work, when it comes to our jobs, when it comes to work, there's an impulse that we have that we want to escape it. We want to see a nice crystal clear water and see a tiny little island where there are no coworkers or bosses present. There's just three nice little palm trees and I want to be there. You know, I don't even need a boat in the picture. I don't want a boat. I just want to be left alone. Or maybe it's just this nice rolling field with bright emerald green grass and a bright blue sky. I just would like to go be in that field rather than at my cubicle right now. I wonder if the reason why desktop images like that, called, uh, like ones called bliss, is because sometimes when we're working, we have this impulse to want to escape work. But work is interesting, isn't it? Because we kind of have like a love-hate relationship with work. On one hand, if we're not working, we're thinking about our work. Uh, 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 at the same time, if we're in between jobs or we can't get a job or we're jobless, maybe we lost our job or we just got out of school and we're looking for a job, if we don't have work, it can drive us crazy. We can feel purposeless. On the other hand, when we think about our work, I mean, it is so tied to our identity. Have you ever thought about this, how when someone asks you what you do, we respond by saying who we are? Oh, what do you do? I am a teacher. I am a nurse. I am a pastor. I am a police officer. I I am a fireman. I I am a doctor. We, We respond. When someone asks what we do, we respond what we are. It's so tied into our identity. But on the other hand, I mean, think of the the connotations we have with this word work. On one hand, it's like, okay, where do you work? It's our job, it's our career. But on the other hand, you know, someone can say, hey, do you want to go do this? And and tells you what's involved. You might say, man, that just sounds like a lot of work. Man, that's just, that's just too much work. Or maybe someone's uh, having a little too much fun. Someone might come in and say, hey, get back to work. When we think of work, it's, it's not just our job. I mean, on one hand, we need it and we love it. But on the other hand, what, what do we associate with this word work? We associate, man, it's just toil and frustration. And we think of, man, like, like we think of hard work. Like we think of like sweating and pushing ourselves and stretching ourselves and stretching our minds and our, our bodies. And it just, we, we think of exhaustion and frustration. Work is this really tough thing that's just kind of this tension that we experience as humans. It's just inseparably tied to who we are. And it drives us to ask all kinds of questions about work. Some of us might be in a season where you're saying, man, what am I supposed to do? I'm out of school. What am I, where am I supposed to work? Or maybe we're in a job that's not fulfilling. Man, is this what I'm supposed to do or is there another job I'm supposed to have? Or maybe we're nearing the end of, of the career that we're on and we're moving towards a retirement. And we're thinking, man, is there going to be another career, a second career? I mean, what am I going to do with myself? Or, or we ask things like, man, this is so frustrating. I love what I do, but man, the, the, the parts that come with it, the people I work with, the boss that I have, or the bureaucracy just make work no fun anymore. And it just can absolutely just frustrate us and, and just it's like a knife turning inside of us. Work can consume us and questions about work can consume us. We're looking in this series called Humanity Hardwired and one of the subjects that we're looking at is, is that we're wired for work. It's part of how we're wired. It's part of who we are. And understanding how we're wired, understanding humanity's relationship to work 
is absolutely essential to answering so many of those questions that buzz around in our minds. So we're going to jump right into Genesis chapter 2. If you turn there with me, Genesis chapter 2, we're going to look at verse 4. We're going to start at verse 4, Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. Just as a reminder, these, we're, we're looking through this series at the very first two chapters in the entire Bible. This is the very, very beginning. It's the beginning of the story. God, it's the story of God creating the universe and then what happens right after God creates the universe, particularly with the human race. Look at Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. It says this, These are the generations of the heaven and the earth, When they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now, I just want to stop here for a quick second. This is kind of a a title introductory verse. Now, we've spent most of the series looking in chapter 1. We're moving into chapter 2. And before we move in and pick apart chapter 2 of the creation story, it's important to know how these two chapters fit together, or it can be a little bit confusing. Chapter 1 and chapter 2 talk about creation, but from two different angles. Chapter 1 of Genesis and chapter 2 of Genesis, if you read them like uh, chapter 2 picks up where chapter 1 left off, if you pick it up completely chronologically, it'll be confusing because in chapter 1, it's this poem that's an overview of God creating everything. And it shows the whole grandeur of all God's creation. It starts with him, there's, there's nothing, and then he speaks light into the world, and then he, then he separates the void, and then starts working, makes sky and water and land, and then uh, fish and, 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 and birds, and he creates vegetation and animals and humans, and it works through this. It's this very poetic description, an overview of God's creation of everything. And then chapter 2 comes in, and it's not what happens next. It's taking creation from another angle. In some ways, they're parallel. One is, this, is kind of poetic. It's beautiful. Two is more of the story. It's more of the narrative. And that verse 4 cues us that we're looking at it from a different angle. Because in chapter 1, it says God made humans. He made man and woman. But chapter 2 is going to dig into that. It's going to show how he made man and then how he makes a woman and then he shows what he calls humanity to do. So chapter 2 is taking creation from a different angle. It's kind of storying. It's like the narrative form of creation. Okay, let's keep going. Verse 5. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and, and look at this, and there was no man, now read this last phrase with me, to work the ground. Now check this out. It's describing where we're at. He's like, okay, I'm going to tell you a little bit more detail about creation. He says, okay, so here's where we're at. There's not a lot of plants yet. God's not caused them to spring up. He's not sent rain on the earth. There's not a lot of plants yet. And he says, and here's why. He says, because I haven't placed humans on the planet yet to work it. I haven't placed a lot of vegetation. There's not a lot of trees. There's not a lot of plants. And the reason being is because I haven't put human beings yet on the planet to manage what's growing. There's some really interesting truth in here. It shows us that God wired the earth for us to lead it 
to work on it, to manage it. He didn't just create a whole creation and said, okay, that's self-sustaining. What's missing? You know, let's throw some humans on there. They'll bring glory to me too. No, he put this whole beautiful creation and then the intention is for that creation, for the creation's sake, he's, the missing piece is humans to run it and to manage it. Now, this is a little bit different than what we typically think, because when we think of like a beautiful forest or a rainforest, or we think of a, just be- nature, we typically think in terms of when humans enter in, we mess it up. We usually think in terms of, okay, if you see a beautiful forest, let's just hope that no humans go in there. Let's hope that they don't, they, we don't want any cabins built or any resorts or any roads. Let's just leave it untouched in all its glory. And you know, there, there may be some truth to that. Maybe at this point in history where we're at, all we do is mess things up. There may be truth to that. But the original intention to how God created it is he wired a world that was prepared for humans to run it. All right, let's keep going. Verse six. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. All right, so here's, here's, there's a lot in there, and we're only going to talk a little pieces of it this morning. But there's a lot in there. He says, okay, a mist was coming up from the ground, and so plants started to come up. And he says, and then he makes humans. He says he takes, he makes a man. He says he takes the dust of the earth, he breathes into him, and he comes to life. And he says, um, and he, he talks about this, this place that he, that he plants, this garden that he plants, and he calls it Eden. Now, Eden is an interesting term that he calls this. This word Eden, we're very familiar with the Garden of Eden. But the word Eden is very strategic. Here's what this word Eden means. It means luxurious bliss. It means, it's like opulent, peaceful joy. There's this idea of just peace and joy, but there's also this idea of luxury. This is what God is naming this garden. Now you're like, okay, where is such a place? Well, it's important to understand where we're at in history, and we've talked about this the last couple weeks. This is the first two chapters of the Bible, and what happens in chapter 3 changes everything. Right now, everything is perfect. Everything is in harmony. Probably walking through the garden, Adam could walk through and he could ride a giraffe if he wants. He could have a, a pet lion, okay? There's a pack of wolves isn't something he's afraid of. I mean, they're his friends. Okay, this is a peaceful, harmonious place. In chapter 3, Adam and Eve, you may remember the moment they eat the forbidden fruit. They rebel against God. Sin enters the world and there's a curse on, this, on us and on the planet. Everything starts to go wrong and try to tear itself apart. But this is before that. That's where we're at in history. There's this place called Eden. It's luxurious bliss. I want you to hear how it describes it next. These next verses describe Eden. And it gives us just a little hint. Look at what it says. Verse 10. A 
a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. And there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havalia, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Now here's what it's describing. Rivers flowing through it all around it. It's lush. Remember he said all of the trees and plants that are beautiful to to see are there. So there's jewels there. There's there's gold and onyx or an abundance there and gorgeous. It's hard for us to, to understand. I mean, trees that maybe we don't even have on this planet anymore, flowers we maybe don't even have on this planet anymore are just absolutely gorgeous. And God is calling this place luxurious bliss. All right, this is just hard for us to get into our brains. Okay, so let me just kind of go at it from this angle to kind of get it into our brains. The single most opulent place that you could stay, like if you're going on vacation and you're saying money is no object, then here is where you would say this is the the most expensive hotel suite in the world is called the Royal Penthouse Suite at Hotel President Wilson. It's in Geneva, Switzerland. Let me just show you. This is the lobby of your hotel room, okay, and you walk in, just to kind of give you an idea, uh, you might need to save up a little bit for this. It's the most expensive hotel room in the world. Um, It's $83,200 a night. Now, I don't know why that extra $200 needed to be in there. I don't know. It's just, they couldn't do it for $83,000. They needed that extra 200. Okay, give you an idea. It's in Geneva, Switzerland. Um, it's got 12 bedrooms and 12 marble bathrooms. It has a wraparound terrace with views of the Swiss Alps and Lake Geneva. They have views all throughout. Yeah, even there you can see that's a view just from one of the 12 bathrooms of uh, Lake Geneva, the Alps, um, in the background. Um, if you stay here, it, this uh, has a, a personal chef that you have all to yourself 24 hours a day on call. You have a butler. Um, You have a personal assistant. Inside your personal hotel suite, you have your own fitness center, billiard room, boardroom, salon, access to a helipad, private elevator, guard room, Steinway, grand piano, and bulletproof windows. Give you an idea of the size of this hotel suite. It is 18,000 square feet. 18,000 square feet. That is gigantic. That's the hotel. There's hotels that are probably that size somewhere. Okay, this is the size of your hotel suite. You're like, okay, that that sounds all good, but I want to know about the real luxury. Tell me about the TVs. Well, the main TV, I mean, there's several, but the main, just to kind of give you an idea, the main TV itself costs, just the TV, $130,000. Okay, if you wanted the most opulent, oh wait, let me show you one more picture here. Check out, this, this is just the, the view from, from the terrace you know, overlooking. It wraps around the entire place, um, so that, that's the view. If you want the most opulent place to stay, okay, the, the most luxurious place humans can muster up and create, it's that penthouse suite. What we're talking about here is what God said, okay, that's luxurious, 
It's not what humans have created and said, wow, that's pretty opulent. This is what God designed and said, okay, man, that's so, we're just going to call this luxurious bliss. That's what we're going to call this place. I mean, it, that, you'd have to like upgrade like a million steps to get to the Garden of Eden from that. You're like, yeah, but it's like outside in like a garden. It's like dirty and stuff. Okay, this is before that. There's like, there's insects everywhere. Well, insects don't bite you back then. Okay, I don't, I mean, it's hard for us to picture. Okay, yeah, but that's got 12 marble bathrooms. Okay, but maybe in the Garden of Eden, they've got these pools where that are just, lo- the bottom, God made lined with gold. I mean, it says there's gold everywhere. It's just lined with gold, and there's like a waterfall, perfect temperature water that you, that's a bathroom of sorts, and then there's a sheet of onyx that you step out, and the sun has perfectly heated it, so it's not too cold when you step out of it. I mean, we can't even imagine what Eden must have been like, but it's so incredible. God says... Wow, that's luxurious. We're just going to call it luxurious bliss. This is what God creates. Now watch what happens. I want you to jump down to the next verse. Check this out, verse 15. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So that's pretty much the best job any human has ever had. God says, okay, you see this incredible place? Okay, here's your home, and this is your job. Work it and keep it. Okay, remember where we're at. I mean, this is, remember in history where we're at. This is before the fall. Okay, this is the greatest possible job anyone has. But I want you to notice something else. We pretty much know only two things about human beings at this point. There's only one human. We really only know two things. God made him, and then God put him to work. This is the first thing God does with him. He makes him, he breathes life into him, and then he says, okay, let me make this garden. Okay, Adam, how you doing? Welcome to life. Here's your job. First thing that he does with this guy is puts him to work. One of the first things human beings have is that we're wired to work. And Adam's got a pretty good gig. He works in a very nice location. So, okay, yeah, but I mean, did, did Adam just luck out? I mean, that's just not what my life is like. Maybe, I mean, that sounds like a really good job. I'd love to have a job like this. How come jobs are not that good now? Okay, to understand this, we've got to jump ahead. I want to see what happens. At the end of chapter 3, Adam and Eve disobey God. Sin enters into the world, and there are consequences. Skip ahead with me to chapter 3, verse 17, and look what it says. And to Adam, he said, this is God speaking. This is Genesis 3.17. Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Do you see what this is saying? Adam and Eve disobey God, and one of the consequences was that now his gardening, he's going to be fighting against thorns and thistles. Do you realize what that means, what his job was before? That means he was gardening and the garden was cooperating. 
That means, I mean, we can't even imagine what that's like. When you think of gardening, you're like, okay, I water it too little, they die. I water it too much, they die. If I prune too much, it dies. If I prune too little, it chokes each other out. I Constantly, I'm pulling weeds, and then there's another weed, and then there's pests, and I've got to keep bugs away and animals away. It's just con- The garden, it's like me versus the garden. I'm constantly working against this. The garden does not cooperate. It doesn't naturally do what I want it to do. Do you realize what this is saying? Adam is gardening, and none of that is happening. He wakes up every morning, probably just hilariously laughing at how awesome his job is. Whatever he wants to do in the garden happens. It's just this expression of creativity in this garden, of shaping it in a way that he thinks is going to please God. He just gets the joy of creating, and it always works. He doesn't try something and it doesn't work really. I mean, every time he tries it, it works. That's not exactly our experience when we work, is it? I will cite one example, a house project. My wife and I, um, we've got, a, we've got a, our little daughter, uh, Scarlett. She's uh, about 19 months old. And then we've got a, another baby on the way, a little boy, going to be doing a couple, a couple months. And so last couple um, weeks, I took some time off to get the house ready for the new baby. And so I was, you know, getting the room ready and I was painting it. And, and here's how almost every house project conversation goes between my wife, Rebecca, and I. I'll, she'll be like, okay, so what are you planning to do? Well, I'm going to fix this up and I'm going to paint a little bit here. And then she's, okay, just how long is it going to take and, and how much do you think it's going to cost? Well, I mean, pro- I mean, just like pff, 50 bucks. I mean, I just take one trip to Home Depot, 50 bucks. Take me two hours max. Rebecca now says, oh, okay, and walks away, and she's recalculating in her brain. Okay, by that you mean $200 and three months, okay? She redoes the house project math in her brain. Three months because I start doing it, break it, and I have to call someone to do it right anyway, okay? House project, if you've done a house project from start to finish in one try, you are ahead of the game. It never works out that easy. Something breaks, something's not right, you've got to make another trip to Home Depot. It just never works out that right. That's the way work is. It's this constant tension. We have this word work and we now associate it. Man, that sounds like a lot of work. What do we now associate it with? The sweat of my brow and toil. You know, that's not what Adam would have associated with work until this moment in Genesis 3. It would have been, man, fulfilling pleasurable, just bringing glory to God, fun, creative, this is outpouring. But now we only get these tiny little glimpses of that, right? And the rest of it is toil as we're working against whatever it is that we're doing, as we're working hard against whatever it is that we're called to do. But man, we're, there's an interesting thing that this passage teaches us. On one hand, we're wired for work. But on the other hand, work is hard and it's frustrating and it's difficult and it doesn't go the way we planned it. We have this love-hate relationship with work. On the one hand, it's, man, it's, I want to find out what's my life work? What's my purpose? Or, man, I don't have a job. I need a job. Or I don't like my job. I need a better job. Or I like my job, but people make my job difficult. Or bureaucracy or rules or regulations make my job difficult. Or the policies of, makes it difficult. I'm just, I'm so close to doing something that I love, but it's just not quite right. 
And on the other hand, we're just, man, we, we want to feel that fulfillment, but on the other hand, we're like, oh, I just can't wait for a vacation, or I'm going to stare at my wallpaper because that's what I want. I, I want to just escape it, or I just can't wait for that vacation, or I, I can't wait for retirement. We have this love-hate relationship with work, and this passage helps us understand why we have this love for it. We're wired for it. And why we have this hate for it? Because it's part of where we're at. The ground is cursed. It's working against us because sin entered the world. Man, if you, if you question whether we are truly deep down wired for work, think about this. Have you ever watched a child playing and, and thought about what activities they're typically doing? Our little daughter, I mentioned, she's 19 months scarlet. And when I watch her play, the thing she does, we got her for Christmas this um, little plastic shopping cart. And it's got all these little plastic pieces of food in there, like a little plastic chicken and like a little uh, plastic grapes and stuff. And they're all in there and she kind of wheels it around. I mean, she doesn't say full sentences yet, but she wheels around. She takes her little uh, stuffed lion, stuffed animal. It's her lion. It's her favorite. She puts it in the, in the main seat just like her mom does. Rebecca puts Scarlet in the shopping cart seat and, and uh, carts it around. What's she doing? I mean, is she mimicking our play? Well, that's a chore, we saw the most incredible thing. I mean, she, she picked up this little stuffed animal. She slung it over her shoulder. Remember, she's still like learning basic words. She slings it over her shoulder, starts patting it, and makes crying sounds. She's walking around, wah, 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 patting, this, patting her little stuffed animal. What is she mimicking? I mean, she's mimicking those things that she witnesses her mother do, Rebecca. Those things, those are, that's work. That's hard work she's witnessing. Think about a child playing. This shows you how much we're wired for work. When children play, what are they doing? They set up all their dolls and stuffed animals and they pretend they're a teacher. They, uh, one guy's the bad guy, the other one's the police officer or firefighter or an astronaut. They, they, maybe they mimic what they see their, their father do, that job. They pretend to do that. Or, or maybe they have a little plastic lawnmower and they, they go around with it just like they, they see their dad do. What, those, what are they doing? Their, their play is work. Think about as adults. One man's leisure is another man's job. What you do for fun, there's someone else out there that does for work and wishes they could do what you do for a job for fun. We are wired for work and understanding this dynamic of how humans are wired for work and why there's such a tension is so important for us to understand this part of our lives. I want to talk through three implications really briefly, three implications of this truth of how we're wired. Here's the first one. Working should be holy. Working should be holy. I want you to think about this. If this is what God placed Adam in the garden to do, if this is the first thing he had humans being doing, that means it's a holy thing that God wants us to do. Sometimes there's this tension where we see hard work, that's just like human effort. But if I'm going to do something that's godly, I'm going to sit back and pray and fast and sing and read the Bible. And that's great, that is act of worship, but work is also God's. Hard work is also God's. Hard work is also an act of worship. There's these two phrases that we, you've probably heard before, these two cliches. Um, one goes like this, let go and let God. Have you heard that phrase before? And then the other one, it's kind of the other end of the, the spectrum. It says, God helps those who help themselves. Now think about those two cliches. By the way, neither of which are actual Bible verses. 
On one pole, God, uh, let go and let God. It means, man, just stop struggling so much and just trust God. And so some people who take that to the extreme say, all right, I'm just going to sit back, do nothing, and let God do it. On the other pole is God helps those who help themselves. God's going to do nothing in your life unless you get up and work hard and get it done. And somewhere, those are these two poles, and some of us veer towards one side and veer towards the other, and somewhere a blend of the two or in the middle is the real truth. God wants you to work and work hard. That's holy. He placed us on this planet to work hard. He wants us to work hard. But he also, in the, in the process, wants us to trust him and let go of the outcome and trust him for the outcome. But he wants us to work hard. Working is holy. Working is an act of worship. No matter what you're doing, God placed him. Do you notice that what God placed Adam to do in the garden is not some lofty, complex thing. He's a gardener. The simplest task, whatever you're doing, whatever you're going to be doing tomorrow morning, Monday morning, it can be done as an act of worship because God designed you to work. Man, I, worship? How, how in the world could it be worship? Well, look at this Bible verse. Look at this, Colossians 3.23. Whatever you do, work heartily as for your boss. No, that's not what it says. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. If you're not excited about what you're going to get up and do tomorrow morning, then write that verse down, Colossians 3.23. Write that down on a note card and take it with you all day because you have a boss, you have someone you're responsible to, but ultimately over that, your boss is God and whatever you do, do it with all of your might for him. Whether you're studying for a test, you're doing homework, whether you're homeschooling your children, taking care of a baby, whether you're working for a good boss or a bad boss, whether you're in a a cubicle or an executive suite, whatever it is that you're doing, you might be hammering a nail or planning strategy for an international corporation. Whatever you're doing tomorrow, do it for God and it's an act of worship. That's how you're wired. Work should be holy. Let's look at this next one. Bring up the next one. Working will be hard. It's going to be difficult. It's not going to be something that simple. See, sometimes what sometimes our struggle is we're in a job and we've heard this, this phrase. Have you ever heard this slogan before? Find something that you love to do and you'll never work a day in your life. Have you heard that phrase before? It's not true. <laughs> The Bible just told us, he says, he says, your job, it will be hard. There's not, when he says your work, it's going to be fighting and you're going to be sweating and you're going to be working against the ground and thistles and thorns. There's no loophole. There's no magical one job that if you find, you'll wake up hilariously laughing and skipping to work every single day. It will be hard. That's part of being human. But here's the problem that we have sometimes. We go to work and we say, okay, I I think this is what I'm, well, at least it's what I'm doing now. I don't know if it's what I should be doing, but it's hard. And man, there's days that I don't like it, or maybe most days I hate it. 
And so I say, okay, I must be in the wrong job. And then I switch jobs. And I'm like, okay, I've got to start over. And I find it, man, this, the, I have a terrible boss. This isn't right. So I, I quit that job and I find another job. I'm like, well, no, I don't like this about it. And maybe I'm in a wrong career and I get this. Or, or maybe I just stick it out and I'm just kind of moping along for years or decades saying, man, my life is terrible. I hate this job. And all of it is kind of predicated under this assumption that I'm going to find this miraculous, beautiful job that has no hardship in it at all. And this passage just told us it doesn't exist. Do you know what we're really seeking after? There's one job we're looking for. Manager of Eden. And it's because we were wired and placed in this garden and Adam had the best job ever. And then sin messed it up. And you know what? When we're looking for that perfect job with no hardship, you know what we're looking for? Manager of Eden. And some of us go from career to career to career, job to job to job, or some of us just think we're suffering through our job. What's wrong with me? And look at that person over there. If I had their job, man, everything would be perfect. And that person's saying that about someone else. And you know what? We're all, we all, then we're all sitting in our current jobs and minimizing all our applications and staring at what? Bliss. There's one place that was bliss. It was Eden. And sin messed that up. And God's preparing us one day. You know how we're going to spend in heaven? We talked about this in our heaven series several months ago. We're not going to be sitting around bored. God wired us to work. But we're going to work and it's just going, and and what we're working on, however God assigns us for eternity or for a couple millennia in eternity is doing things, working with all of the joy and the fulfillment and and none of the hardships. But in the meantime, there's no such thing as a job title, manager of Eden. God's just simply placed us where we're at right now. And he wants us to work at it with all of our might and understand those expectations. And here's the last implication. Working should be holy. Working will be hard. And working, it's human. Remember it said that he hadn't placed, the ground hadn't produced crops yet and plants yet because he hadn't put a human in there. How this world is wired is for work. Here's what that means. There's nothing in your life that's not going to require work. It's how this world is wired. It's how you're wired. A marriage, if you don't work at a marriage, it's not going to work well. If you don't work at a marriage, if you just kind of plateau and you stop working on it, you stop working to serve each other and know each other and understand each other and, and bless each other, if you, don't, if you stop and, and just stop working at it, stop working at communication, it doesn't plateau. Weeds take over. Thorns and thistles, it chokes it out. Everything that we do, it's wired to require work. Marriage, a relationship with kids, Relationship with friends, relationship with, with, with any relationship, it's going to require work. That's how it's wired. Your job, it's going to require work. If, if I'm just kind of saying, God, why aren't you making this, this better? He's saying, well, I placed you there. I want you to work hard. Trust me for the outcome. But part of it is you working hard. Health. If I don't work at my health, it's not going to plateau, is it? Everything that we do, it's, it's working as human. It's how we're wired to function and to operate. See, we are wired for work. God places this. This is why we have this pull towards it, this need for it. But at the same time, Scripture just so satisfactorily shows us 
why we have this tension and why it's so difficult and helps us manage our expectations and to understand that we're wired for work, but ultimately we can do it for God's glory. There is one exception to how everything requires work. There's one notable exception. It's, interestingly, it's the single most important thing about your life. And it's the thing that we assume requires the most work. And the reality of it, all the work has been done already for you. And it's more about just realizing that the work was done. And that's your salvation. The single most important thing, where you're going to spend eternity. You may be here this morning saying, man, that takes the most work. I've got to be a good person. I've got to be religious. I've got to do the things like praying and being at church. I've got to be nice to people. I mean, that's exhausting trying to earn my way to heaven. And so that's the thing. To understand salvation is to realize there's no amount of work you could do to get there. If we were all working for salvation, no one would get there. No one's perfect enough to get there. No one's good enough. The incredible story of the Bible, cover to cover, is that the one most important thing is the one thing that we do no work to attain. The work was done completely for us. God sent Jesus, the Son of God. He came down to earth. He lived a perfect life and died on the cross, taking all of our sin on himself. And he says, look, I I did all the work for you. I died, I rose again from the dead. All of your sins are paid for. He says, just put your faith in me, and God says, you're forgiven permanently. You're washed clean. You're perfect. There's nothing for you to do. You just simply receive and accept the gift. Just simply put your faith in in Jesus and say, God, I'm going to just stop all of my efforts trying to earn my salvation and trust that Jesus did all the work for me and just accept what you've done on my behalf. It's the most important thing about you, whether you're going to spend eternity with God in heaven or not. And it's the one thing that requires no work. Jesus did all the work on the cross. You just simply receive it. Some of you may be here this morning and you're exhausted deep down from trying to earn your salvation. And it's time to stop working for your salvation. It's time to start realizing that all the work's been done for you. And living in light of the fact that you're already saved by Jesus. And this morning, some of you, it's time to take that step and put your faith in Jesus. If that's you, if you say, okay, I I have been trying to earn my salvation, but I need to stop and realize that Jesus saved me on the cross, that he did the work for me. I want to receive that gift today. If that's you, I want to lead you in a prayer. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? If that's you, would you just simply pray this prayer right there in your seat between you and God? Just pray this from your heart to God. God, I've been trying to earn my salvation. I've been trying to be good enough, religious enough, spiritual enough. But I realize all the work has been done for me through Jesus. I receive that free gift of salvation. Thank you for washing my sins away. I believe Jesus died for me and rose again from the dead to wash me clean. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at westpines.org. If you would like to speak with someone about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, please call us at 954-432-0321.
or you can email us at podcast at westpines.org.